0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. At this Indigenous People's Day, we take a look at the Land Back movement for Native Americans to reclaim their
1: ancestral land. Not only are we fighting to reclaim our relationship to the land, but we're also fighting because we know that when we have a relationship with the land and we are the ones stewarding the land, all people benefit. I think it's somewhere around 20% of indigenous peoples manage 80% of the world's biodiversity. We protect that. Also, amid pressure from Native nations, President Biden restores Bears Ears National
0: Monument in Utah.
2: The president himself said this was a first aid issue. This was not a particular kind of campaign or advocacy on our part. This is what the president campaigned.
0: That and more this week on Living on Earth, stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. This U.S. holiday weekend has long been known as Columbus Day, but is now celebrated by many as Indigenous Peoples Day. It's a day to reflect on the legacy of first contact between Europeans and Native Americans. Columbus and his 1492 discovery kicked off a pattern of land theft and genocide that would sweep across the U.S., fueled by a European perspective that the land and its people were their God-given right to claim and subdue. The entire region was once home to diverse Native peoples, but today they hold just two percent of the land, an area about the size of Idaho. Now some Native groups are calling for their tribal land to be given back to them. For more, we called up Crystal Two Bowles, director of the Land Back Campaign at NDN Collective. Crystal, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me.
1: So what exactly does land back mean for you? You know, land back means a lot of different things, but I would say first and foremost, land back is very much the literal reclamation of land. And it's the reclamation of everything stolen from us when we were forcefully removed from the lands. So we were fully thriving economies and societies that, you know, were fully functioning here before colonization. And so our kinship systems, our governance systems, our healthcare, housing, food, you know, education systems, all of these things were based on our relationship to the land. And more significantly, it's our spirituality, it's our culture, it's our language, and it's the ceremonies, all of which are very tied to the land as well. And so Land Back is reclaiming all of those things. And it's literally reclaiming the land, not in a colonial sense of, in terms of like ownership of the land, But using that as a tool to be able to get access to to rebuild our relationship with the land, you know, and then that builds all of those things. Right. And so, yeah, like Land Back is literal reclamation of land. And I would say that also, you know, through the Land Back campaign with Indian Collective, it's also very focused on public lands, like federally managed lands and state public lands that were strategically removed from us and placed into like national park system or state parks to specifically keep us from that land.
0: Now, of course, the whole of the United States must have been Native land before colonists came along, but it sounds like you want to start with public lands and specifically um, the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore. Can you tell us more about why that area is so special and that you want to begin this campaign there?
1: Yeah, I mean... For us, the Black Hills, the Heisapa, you know, it was the traditional territory of many different nations, not just the Chachishakoi, but the Northern Cheyenne and different nations all around the area. We came out of the earth there. Our stories tell us we came from these lands to be the original stewards of these lands, to caretake and be in relationship with these lands. There's water here. Our medicines are here. We can hunt here. There's different nuts and berries and fruits that we can gather that grow naturally here. So everything that we need to exist as a people is right here. And we are mandated to protect everything that is sacred and that gives life. For us, that's what the Black Hills represent is is a life source in a connection to our very being as Lakota people. You know, for me as an Oglala Lakota woman, as a Northern Cheyenne woman, to be connected to that is literally part of my identity. And the fight for the Black Hills has been ongoing since settlers first entered our territory. These are our traditional territories and these are part of our actual lands according to the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. And for us, Mount Rushmore is like the ultimate shrine to white supremacy. I mean, it was carved by a KKK member. Everything about it represents white supremacy in the heart of this so-called nation. Calling attention to that is very significant. Not only is it us doing our duties and our responsibility of protecting and caretaking this land that gives life, but also it's standing in solidarity and also addressing the fact that this nation was built on white supremacy and that these systems continue to uphold it.
0: Well, Crystal, what would it actually look like for land like Mount Rushmore and the Black
1: Hills to be returned to Indigenous people? How would that work? Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways that land back is happening right now. And specifically with the Black Hills, you know, it looks like land literally being returned to the Oceti Then that includes Mount Rushmore. You know, that's just one example in terms of like federal, right, and these federally managed lands. But I think There's so many stories of individuals returning land back to nations or tribal members or to Native-led organizations. There's stories of nations able to purchase back pieces of land and to be able to get them back in trust and to be a land base for their community and their peoples. Land trusts are definitely an avenue for land reclamation to happen. There's land occupations where different nations have treaty rights and rights over these territories that were not honored by the United States government and that were broken. And so nations are occupying those lands and reclaiming them. Land back can look many, many different ways, you know, and for us with the Black Hills, it does very much include those lands being returned back to the Shakoi and being managed by us as well.
0: And if they were managed by you, would you um, still feel comfortable having tourists and visitors come to visit them as they do now?
1: I mean, I think those are like larger conversations that I can't really give a specific answer to, you know, because like that's not my right to say and speak on behalf of an entire ochete Shakoi nation. But what I will say about that is that we are not here to replicate colonial systems in colonial practices. And so we do this work because we work on behalf of all peoples. Not only are we fighting to reclaim our relationship to the land, But we're also fighting because we know that when we have relationship with the land and we are the ones stewarding the land, that all people benefit. I think it's somewhere around 20% of Indigenous peoples manage 80% of the world's biodiversity. And that is a huge number. We protect that. When we are fighting oil pipelines, because we know that they are going to leak and that they're going to pollute drinking water, we don't do that just for our communities. We do that for every community that is downstream from that pipeline that is going to get contaminated water. And for us to really look at mitigating climate change and really investing in having a world that is inhabitable in the future, it has to start with Indigenous people. It has to be led by Indigenous people because We descend from those systems, those healthy systems and the healthy ideology that benefits and allows for all people to thrive, that creates healthy economies, that creates healthy societies. We know that it is possible because that is what we come from. So we're not here to replicate colonial systems of deporting people and kicking people out and treating people the way that we have been treating. We are here to show a different way forward. And and that starts with us reclaiming land.
0: Crystal Tubals is director of the Land Back Campaign at NDN Collective. Crystal, thank you so much for taking this time
1: today. Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: Activists cheered an October 7th announcement from the White House that President Biden would restore protection for three national monuments, each of which were shrunk or modified under the previous administration. Many Republicans say Congress should make these decisions, not just the president, so boundaries can be permanently settled. The three in question are the Northeast Canyons and Seamount Marine National Monument off the coast of New England and the Mid-Atlantic, as well as Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monument, both in Utah. President Biden pledged to restore protections for the monuments on the campaign trail, a move welcomed by environmental groups and Native nations, though they were frustrated that it took the better part of a year to do so. Native American nations were especially vocal about Bears Ears. Native peoples have lived in the area known as Bears Ears for upwards of 13,000 years. It's considered sacred land by many Native Americans and home to thousands of archaeological sites and ancient petroglyphs. So five nations of Native peoples, each with deep ties to the land, petitioned President Obama to use the Antiquities Act to create Bears Ears National Monument in 2016. Just a year later, President Trump shrank the size of the National Monument designation by roughly 85 percent, claiming it would boost economic development. And in the absence of any protection, many ancient archaeological treasures there, including Native burial sites and petroglyphs, have been damaged. Patrick Gonzalez-Rogers is the executive director of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, representing the five nations native to the region.
2: For some of the tribes, and there are five distinct ones, the Bears Ears, in many instances, represents their particular church and cathedral. These are where cultural and spiritual practices are not just part of their history. This is a part of their contemporary state of being. I would really encourage people to think about it in the same way that you would think about a 300-year-old Protestant chapel in rural Connecticut, or the Vatican, or the Cathedral of Notre Dame. These are iconic. These are inflection points, and they're the cornerstone of their actual theology.
0: I understand that Bears Ears is actually being damaged right now by visitors to the area.
2: Mainly the BLM and the U.S. Forest Service have not added more resources, either in a people power sense or assets. And so there is very little to manage this flow of people. We've already seen um, all kinds of graffiti, as well as destruction of cultural sites. Whether these are petroglyphs, potteries, or things of that nature, these become, you know, in some ways, the objective of visitors, Can I find these things? Can I take something home? Some are done with a kind of what I would call benevolent ignorance. Others are, they want to actually destroy Native things. And so this makes for, in some instances, irreparable harm.
0: So just looking at a little bit of the history here, um, Bears Ears was established as a national monument under President Obama and then shrunk by roughly 85 percent under President Trump, essentially to pave the way for uranium mining there. To what degree is that kind of extraction still a possibility in Bears Ears?
2: So there is a backstory to this, and this backstory is a horrific one. Trump did this under the rhetoric of the proper usage of public lands for this regional area is to turn it over to the extraction industry. And that would then buoy the regional economy. Well, a couple of things about that. And so, again, let's be specific. It's uranium. You can't use the land for another 10,000 years after you use it for uranium. Two, as we speak, we have about a four-decade surplus of uranium. All right? Third. Uranium can be actually acquired 85 to 90% cheaper in Canada, Australia, and the Ukraine. Mm. So that's the third point. The fourth point, and which is the most egregious, the entity that most benefits from this is an entity called Energy Fuels, Inc. They are not a U.S. company. They're a Canadian company with outfits in Colorado, and they basically drew down the reduction boundaries, which the Trump administration followed almost verbatim.
0: Patrick Gonzalez-Rogers is the executive director of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. Patrick, thank you so much for taking this time with me today.
2: My pleasure. Time well spent.
0: The Arctic is warming and changing fast, from melting glaciers and shifting habitat to what's on the menu for the region's top predator. Birdnotes Michael Stein has more.
3: Polar bears, mighty predators of the Arctic, hunt seals and their pups on sea ice. But a warming Arctic means longer seasons without ice and the early return of polar bears to land. Their untimely arrival coincides with droves of birds sitting on a bounty of eggs. Depending on where a polar bear is in the Arctic, there may be common eiders, thick-billed myrrhs, little auks, glaucous gulls, lesser snow geese, and barnacle geese on the menu. While bears feed primarily on eggs and chicks, they will take the occasional adult if they can grab one. Unfortunately, a single clutch of eggs is no substitute for a seal rich in fat. So, hungry polar bears go from one nest to another, and then another, until they've eaten their way through pretty much all of the nests in a colony. The fate of these birds is unknown, but at least one bird is getting some help. On Cooper Island, off the coast of Alaska, where nesting black guillemots are vulnerable to predation, Scientists have placed polar bear-proof nest cases to give the birds a fighting chance. I'm Michael Stein.
0: For photos, head on over to the Living on Earth website, loe.org. Coming up, grizzly bears are moving into the warming Arctic and mating with polar bears to create pizzly bears. That's just ahead on Living on Earth.
4: If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
0: It's living on Earth. I'm Bobby Vascom. Well, it's time for a trip now beyond the headlines with Peter Dijkstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's EHN.org and dailyclimate.org. Hey there, Peter. What do you have for us today?
5: Hi, Bobby. We have maybe the classic modern American tale. Half of young American kids tested in a sweeping study, one point one million kids younger than the age of six had some level of lead in their blood, according to a peer-reviewed piece in the journal JAMA Pediatrics.
0: Wow, that's pretty troubling. I mean, lead in the blood for children especially can lead to a whole um, host of of long-term health problems, including learning disabilities.
5: It's a classic neurotoxin. It's everywhere, although not as everywhere as it used to be. Bear in mind, 50 years ago, we phased out uh, lead fuel. Kids' lead levels have dropped accordingly, but they're far from done.
0: I believe also we really have to worry about old water pipes and things that can deliver lead right into your glass of water for children.
5: That's correct. And that's the main culprit, particularly in older cities. Flint, Michigan is kind of the poster child for lead pipes leading from a water main into individual homes. That is also a target, removing lead pipes of any infrastructure bill, however, whatever, whenever it may pass.
0: Right, well, the CDC standards indicate that just 2% of kids have concerning levels of lead in their blood, but most public health officials will tell you that there's no such thing as a safe level of lead for children.
5: That's correct, and and uh, those lead levels are neurotoxins at very minute levels. A second story about neurotoxins, including lead on economic and consumer policy, is uh, going after the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to speed up its work in setting standards for heavy metals in baby food products.
0: Baby food. Gosh, I guess, I I mean, it's surprising on the one hand, you would think, well, of course, there shouldn't be heavy metals in baby food. It goes without saying, right? But if there's no standards, then companies have nothing to work with.
5: Right. And the levels of concern, just like lead in drinking water or elsewhere, are absolutely minute. The neurotoxins include not only lead, but things like cadmium and mercury and arsenic. They're concerned about big traditional names of cereals, as well as even cereals uh, sold as organics, because some of these substances are in baby food and other food products naturally.
0: Wow, that's really troubling. And so the researchers are finding this just across the board, heavy metals in baby food.
5: Across the board, there are no safe levels uh, for things like cadmium and mercury in baby food products. So this is something that Congress is urging the Food and Drug Administration to take a very close look at and set very tight standards.
0: And uh, in absence of those standards right now, I wonder if companies are moving forward on their own to make sure that their product is safe for children, for babies.
5: Well, they're certainly paying attention. It's not always easy to get companies to regulate. But when you talk about children's health and things like baby food products, it's impossible to ignore.
0: Yeah, and that's a publicity nightmare for a company if they think parents don't think their product is safe anymore. Well, what do you have for us from the history books this week, Peter?
5: Well, we talked about an epic tale of infrastructure. How about an epic tale that's sometimes considered the great American novel? This time of year in 1851, Herman Melville's Moby Dick was published initially in London. And even though it's fiction, it's based on a real life episode. The whale ship Essex was actually rammed by a sperm whale in 1820. The ship was pretty much destroyed between that and a storm. The crew scattered throughout the South Pacific and uh, later came together to tell their tale, which was fictionalized, told, retold, mistold. And by 1851, we ended up with Moby Dick.
0: Wow, 1851. So 170 years later, and the, and the tale of moby Dick still resonates with people.
5: It's a pretty potent one, particularly when you consider that Captain Ahab is a 19th century clinical example of obsessive-compulsive disorder.
0: <laughs> I guess that's true. All right, well, thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks a lot, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon.
5: Okay, Bobby. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
0: And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website, loe.org. The Arctic is warming faster than any other region on Earth. It actually rained on the Greenland ice sheet in August for the first time ever. And sea ice recently reached its minimum extent for 2021. It was the 12th lowest amount of sea ice since scientists began keeping records. And for the endangered polar bear, a warming Arctic is bad news. With their habitat melting, polar bears are having trouble finding food. At the same time, grizzly bears are moving north and, in some cases, mating with polar bears, creating a hybrid animal known as a pizzly bear. Larissa DeSantis is a paleontologist and associate professor of biology who studies pisley bears at Vanderbilt University. She joins us now for more. Professor DeSantis, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me please, what does a pisley bear look like and how do these hybrids compare with the parent
6: species of grizzly and polar bears? So a pizzly bear is essentially an intermediate between these two. It's a hybrid species and it's actually fertile. And they actually look exactly like you would expect mixing a polar bear and a grizzly bear. So polar bears tend to have really elongated skulls. And this is because they're really well suited for being able to hunt seals and sea ice. And so essentially, they can sort of get into those holes and and effectively hunt those seals. The grizzlies have much shorter skulls, and they're able to exude really high bite forces to be able to eat really hard foods when needed. And so essentially, this pizzly is intermediate between those two you can also see that their coloration is sort of intermediate, right? So they're they're a bit uh, lighter in coloration than a grizzly, but darker in coloration than a polar bear. And there's lots of other features that folks have studied in captivity that seem to also be intermediate as well. And this includes sort of the morphology of their hair to also their swimming ability, right? So they're better swimmers than grizzlies, not as good as polar bears. Now, typically, Hybrids are not better suited than either parent species for a particular environment. Normally, we would say that a grizzly bear is better suited for its environment and a polar bear is better suited for its environment. But as we're dealing with a warming Arctic, we really don't know how these pizzlies will do in the future. And they may be better suited for the warming Arctic than the polar bear.
0: Now, many hybrid species like ligers or mules are sterile and can't produce offspring themselves, but I, I think you just said that pizzly bears actually
6: can reproduce. Does that make them their own species? So I teach introductory biology, and there we go over the different species concepts. And typically, as biologists, we use the biological species concept. And what that idea is about is essentially that if two different species are able to produce Fertile hybrids, and technically they are not two different species. Now, that being said, the polar bear and the grizzly bear are really sort of a a unique situation. They diverged roughly around 500, 600,000 years ago. They're pretty closely related to one another in the grand scheme of things, and they also look Quite different from one another, right? These are different bears. We know they're different species. They do completely different things in their ecosystems. They're different ecological niches, for example. And so, if we looked at, say, even the morphological species concept or the ecological species concept, we would definitively say that these are two different species. But you're absolutely right. You know, they can produce these fertile hybrids. That's really interesting. And we know that it's actually able to persist. So for example, there was a study in 2017 where they noted a particular bear was the product of a pisley-grizzly mating. And so a polar bear and a grizzly had mated, then that offspring, the pisley, mated with another grizzly and produced another hybrid. And so we do know that you can still get sort of the viability of these bears sort of down the road. So then would you say
0: pisley bears are their own species?
6: I wouldn't go that far. Uh, They are a hybrid and hybrids occur pretty frequently in nature. And typically we see hybridization occurring, you know, over and over and over in particular regions where two different species are coming together. And so it's not surprising that we see hybrids of these two bears, especially since they're closely related. And this is because essentially the brown bears, the grizzly bears, are moving north due to Arctic warming. The polar bears are actually having to retreat from the sea ice, the lack of sea ice, and they're having to come further inland and often travel further south or look for other food resources and other studies are coming out, even, you know, just recently showing that they're trying to eat, you know, seabird eggs and and not very effectively or, you know, whatever they can sort of scrounge around. And, and and that's one of the things that is really kind of challenging for this polar bear is because it has this elongated skull, it's not well suited to eating just sort of any type of food source, right? It, it actually has biomechanical constraints that prevent it from you know, eating really hard things. And so it's sort of having to scavenge potentially to find different food resources. It'll find these bowhead whale carcass sites. That's where the grizzly bears can also be as well. And they're coming into increased contact and occasionally mating. So how many
0: pizzly bears are there now, roughly, would you say? And what is the trend looking like for the populations going forward?
6: So that's a great question. And unfortunately, we don't know the answer. We don't know how many Pizzlies there are. The Pizzley was first discovered in 2006 and has recently been, you know, the focus of various studies, both in captivity and also in the wild to try to sort of document occurrences when we have hybridization. It can be difficult to sometimes tell if the morphology isn't quite signaling that this is a hybrid species. But in many cases, these bears do really look intermediate in form and can be identified visually and then Subsequently followed up with genetic testing to sort of see if they are in fact hybrids and, and verify this. So we don't know if if hybridization will continue, will increase, will decline. I expect that it will increase because we are increasing the frequency that these two bears are coming together. That all being said, it's something that needs to be sort of monitored carefully, and we really need to better understand sort of how fit or or not fit these hybrids are for living in a sort of Arctic ecosystem, but also a dynamic and changing ecosystem.
0: So with polar bear populations declining so dramatically with the loss of sea ice and with climate change, as you, you were just saying, how likely is it that they will ultimately be replaced by pizzly bears or even grizzly bears if it gets much, much warmer? And, and for that matter, how would a different apex predator in the Arctic affect the whole ecosystem?
6: So that's a fantastic question, and we really don't know the answer to that. But what we need to do is actually monitor the polar bears, continue to monitor grizzlies, and also monitor these pizzlies and see how they do. So as I mentioned, hybrids normally aren't better suited than either parent species, right? But in this case, with the environment changing, they may be our hope for an Arctic bear. And what we do know about predators across the globe and through time is that apex predators especially are really key to the functioning of ecosystems, right? This is why wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone because the elk populations were sort of out of control, wreaking havoc on the vegetation, things were out of balance. And so reintroducing wolves to that system really helped provide sort of a more functional ecosystem and a a more stable ecosystem. So we know that the apex predators are super important. I'm really hopeful that we can change some of our actions in regards to the polar bear and give that species hope. That being said, if this pisley, the sort of intermediate morphology, intermediate conditions is better suited, which we don't know, but if it is, then that may give us hope for an Arctic bear in a world in which we have Arctic warming. Larissa DeSantis
0: is a paleontologist and professor at Vanderbilt University. Larissa, thank you so much for taking this time with me today.
6: Thanks so much for having me. This is really fun.
0: Coming up... Sea level rise poses a serious risk for coastal landfills. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. Around the country, thousands of coastal landfills are threatened by sea level rise and storms. Decades ago, wetlands were seen as a good place to dump trash, since they were considered useless for housing or farming. Now, we better understand how critical wetlands are as a wildlife habitat and buffers from coastal storms. We'll have more on the big-picture risk of sea level rise and coastal landfills a bit later in the show, but first, let's take a look back at a story about one of the 1,000 waste incinerator landfills across the country. Waste incinerators generate toxic fly ash and wouldn't be allowed in coastal landfills today. But many have been grandfathered in, including a 1950s landfill in Saugus, Massachusetts, slated for closure in 1996, but still operating. In fact, the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection gave the green light to allow an additional half-million tons of carcinogenic fly ash and bottom ash to be dumped there by a company known then as Wheelabrator. It's a leaky, unlined landfill sitting in an estuary in an area prone to flooding. I reported on the facility back in 2018, just as a nor'easter arrived on a full moon to dump torrential rains on the coast just north of Boston. Each high tide brought a new round of flooding for residents like Kelly Lempendecchio, who shared videos of her flooded neighborhood on Facebook. Okay, we're at high tide. The water is ankle-deep in her backyard and out front, the street is completely submerged and water creeps up the front steps towards her door. Every house on the street is sitting in water.
2: rail is completely gone. That's a dock that floated over from boat Yard. The neighborhood has totally disappeared.
0: It's a lot of water, but Sandra Hurley-Jukes another other residents of Revere say they're used to flooding here. When we get a flood tide here, this house becomes an island. And um, it happens, I'm going to say, five to seven times a year. Sandra called me during the storm from her mom's house, which sits on a narrow spit of land between Rumney Marsh and Massachusetts Bay, the Atlantic Ocean. She says three generations of her family have lived here in the house her grandfather built. It's a beautiful estuary. We have all kinds of birds that nest here. We We have turtles. Um, We have sails that come in the river. I mean, it's beachfront
3: property. It just comes with the the downfall of having a trash incinerator across the street.
0: That trash incinerator and the landfill next to it belong to a company named Wheelabrator Technologies. They own more than a dozen waste facilities across the country. When the tide comes in and we get these flood tides, the landfill and Wheelabrator become an island also. They're cut off from um, land. It's water on both sides. So the water is literally lapping right up on the landfill itself. And it's the landfill that really concerns local residents like Sandra. It's the repository for fly ash and bottom ash. That's the material that doesn't actually burn up during waste incineration. It contains a cocktail of heavy metals and toxic chemicals, mercury, cadmium, arsenic, lead, and dioxins. For every four tons of trash burned, one ton of ash is left behind, and it has to go somewhere. Elaine Hurley, Sandra's mother, stands in a restaurant parking lot in Revere, overlooking the landfill. Revere and the surrounding cities are working class industrial communities. Elaine says she remembers back before there were scrubbers on the incinerator when all the toxic chemicals went out the smokestack and straight into the air, a stone's throw from her home. When they started burning, the fly ash would come in my house. On the windowsills, it was like a black soot all the time. And you run your finger on it, it was like greasy. actually ate the paint off the side of my car that was parked towards it. Elaine Hurley says she's relieved to have cleaner air, but concerned about what the chemicals that ate the paint off her car could do to the marsh if they leach out of the landfill. We've gone over there, we've videotaped the marsh where the water leaches out. No vegetation. It's dead. All dead. So what's the effects on the fish? You know, what's the effects on the ducks? The landfill sits literally inside the Rumney Marsh, which was declared an area of critical environmental concern in 1988. It's a vitally important habitat for local and migrating species, an oasis in an industrial area. Planes leaving Logan Airport fly over every two to three minutes. A busy highway borders the estuary on one side, and it's surrounded by development on the other sides, houses, gas stations, dry cleaners, and so on. Joan LeBlanc of the Saugus River Watershed Council stands behind a Dunkin' Donuts, next to a pile of lobster traps, and looks out at the
3: estuary. In the spring, when the fish come in, the um, rainbow smelt, alewives, and all sorts of other fish come in from the ocean to feed and to migrate. Um, In the summertime, you're going to see all manner of shorebirds, as well as migrating birds. Um, So great blue herons, snowy egrets, there are also mammals. You have river otter, you have musk, coyotes
0: even sometimes. She says any chemical contaminants in the marsh will bioaccumulate up the food chain to eventually contaminate more species, including humans that eat fish. These are the types of issues that keep me up at night. Research suggests that by the end of the century, there will be one and a half to two feet of sea level rise in this area. Joan LeBlanc says sea level rise, coupled with frequent coastal storms, makes the incinerator landfill particularly vulnerable.
3: So, yes, we are really concerned about the future. And if there were some kind of a major breach in a storm here with the Sash landfill, and that were to empty into the marsh, I just, I don't know how or if you would be able to clean that up. Most of the landfill is currently capped,
0: and from afar looks like a grassy hill. There's even a bird sanctuary on part of it. But the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection gave the green light for Wheelabrator to tear the cap off 39 acres of the facility, so they can dump roughly half a million tons of additional incinerator waste into two valleys originally designed for stormwater runoff. Kirsty Petchy is director of the Zero Waste Project with the Conservation Law Foundation. She says the MassDEP decision to expand the capacity of the landfill is especially egregious because the landfill doesn't have a plastic liner.
6: Here, there just happens to be clay because when you dig a hole in a marsh, you're going to hit clay. Um, There was not a clay liner constructed, as far as I can tell, ever.
0: The landfill, built in the 1950s, predates the federal law that requires such facilities to have a proper plastic liner. But Petchy says even if it did have a plastic liner, it would likely
6: still leak. Because the waste is caustic, that's going to eat through a plastic liner or poke through a tra- plastic liner sooner or later. So even if those were plastic lined, I'd say we need to be testing what's escaping the landfill. And that's another controversial
0: point. This is the only incinerator landfill in Massachusetts where the state does not routinely sample groundwater as required by federal law. Petchi of the Conservation Law Foundation says Willibrader's own graphs show that the bottom of the landfill is actually resting in water. So
6: there's no way to keep the contamination from entering the, the marsh because it's in the water. There's that, by definition, it's going to spread through the water.
0: To find out why they aren't testing the groundwater, as the law requires, I made many requests to speak to Willibrader facilities the Massachusetts Governor's Office, and the Massachusetts DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, they all turned me down. The DEP suggested I talk to the Environmental Protection Agency, Region 1, which oversees Massachusetts, but the EPA referred me back to Mass DEP. In an email, Ed Coletta, a spokesman for MassDEP, explained that instead of taking water samples near the facility, they rely on a slurry wall to contain the landfill. They measure the pressure both inside and outside the wall with an instrument called a piezometer. As long as the pressure is higher outside the wall than inside, they assume any leachate is contained inside the landfill. But resident Sandra Hurley-Jukes says that's no substitute for actually taking water samples near the facility. I think they're not taking them because they don't want to know. Other residents, like L. Baker, are frustrated The willabrator spends lavishly to buy goodwill in the community, but won't pay for groundwater samples or an environmental impact report.
2: If they're willing to write checks for Little League, for tree lighting, for other things like this in the community, why not for an environmental impact report? Because
6: that is truly being a good neighbor. That's truly proving to us, the community, that maybe, maybe it's not as dangerous. But they don't
0: want that to happen. They don't want to provide that to the community, and and that is what's concerning. The only official willing to speak to me about this issue was State Representative Rose Lee Vincent. I'm determined to, to make sure that we do whatever we can to you know stop this injustice. Representative Vincent has introduced legislation to close the Wheelabrator landfill twice. It's wrong. It's just so
4: wrong, and how anyone can look at it and not think it's wrong. Um, instead of realizing, okay, it was wrong, but now we can try to do something to fix it. Let's, let's try to mitigate and
0: make it safe. What they want to do, though, is make it bigger. They don't want to make it safe. Vincent says she's worried about the potential health effects on the community where four generations of her family have lived, where she raised her own children. My children don't live here, but someone's children live here now. But it's not about just my children, it's about everyone's children. Someday, some kids should be able to go fishing in that water. Because water samples aren't taken, there's no way to know what chemical pollutants, or how much, might be leaking into the estuary from the landfill. But scientists like George Thurston know what they would expect. Thurston directs the Program in Exposure Assessment and Human Health Effects at the NYU School of Medicine. He's also served on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Health Effects of Waste Incineration.
4: Our committee, when we looked at this uh, for the National Academy of Sciences, identified uh, cadmium, arsenic, mercury, and lead as some of the components of the particles that were of most health concern.
0: He says exposure to these types of pollutants can have serious health effects over time.
4: Cumulative long-term exposures can uh, increase risk of cancer.
0: According to the Massachusetts Cancer Registry, the communities near the facility do have elevated rates of certain cancers, including leukemia, testicular cancer, and cancer of the larynx. George Thurston says that's all the more reason to be careful when permitting more potential exposures. And opening up a capped landfill is inherently more dangerous than leaving the facility closed.
4: But I would say any time you open up one of these capped facilities, then that would increase the, the risk of some sort of an accident and getting a release. The biggest concerns are when things don't go as they should. You need continuous monitoring to, to determine that.
0: Since we first aired this story in 2018, Wheelabrator changed its name to Waste Innovation Technologies. The Massachusetts DEP did allow for more fly ash jumping at the facility. The Conservation Law Foundation and the Board of Health for the town of Saugus argued against that decision, but ultimately lost in court. So in 2019, the company began filling in the stormwater valleys with additional fly ash. Well, the Saugus Waste Incinerator landfill may be an extreme example, but Massachusetts is not alone when it comes to problematic coastal landfills. There are roughly 100,000 landfills across the United States, and more than half are on the coast, where sea level rise is a serious threat. In fact, scientists tell us to expect several feet of sea level rise in the next century as a result of climate change. Independent journalist Dave Lindorf has been digging into this story for The Nation, and he joins me now. Dave Lindorf, welcome to Living on Earth.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, why are there so many landfills sited in coastal areas? I mean, I guess that's where the people live mostly, so it kind of makes sense. Is that all there is to it?
7: That's it. You know, historically, landfills have been everywhere people are, and the majority of people live along coastlines. In the U.S., it's about, I think, 40% of the population lives within something like 40 miles of a coastline. You know, dating back to the industrial era, they've had to put garbage in places. And what they do is they pick what are considered wasted land for landfills. And wasted land is defined as land that you can't build taxable property on. And that tends to be swamps and wetlands, river estuaries, and floodplains. And that's exactly what coastlines are. I mean, it's kind of amazing. If you go to a place like the New Jersey wetlands, there are 13 mountainous landfills sitting in the wetlands. And some of them are, you know, as much as 300 feet high, filled with garbage and closed. So they're covered with sod. They look look harmless because, you know, they look like grassy hills. But those waters are going to rise. They hit out an eight-foot storm surge on top of the tide when uh, Hurricane Sandy hit in 2012. When it gets worse and the water's actually higher, and then you get these storm surges too, the sod is going to take be taken off the liners that are on whatever of those landfills have liners. And many of them don't under or over. None of them are lined underneath. And so all of this stuff is vulnerable. It could all wash out.
0: And so the concern is literally that rising seas will just come and tear away at the landfills and you have just garbage emptying out into estuaries, marshes, and ultimately the ocean.
7: That's right. And the thing about that is, you know, remember that these these wetlands are where about 70% of the sea life in the open ocean have part of their reproductive cycle. You know, either whether it's laying eggs or mating upriver or having their uh, young. All of these creatures that ecology depends on have to have some kind of pollution-free wetlands or river estuaries for their breeding cycle.
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, when a lot of these landfills were built, I mean, as you said, you know, wetlands were just, you can't farm there, you can't build there, you might as well put your garbage there. But now, of course, we know that they are tremendously important ecosystems, as well as protecting from storm surge and, and rising seas. That's kind of adding insult to injury in a way.
7: Yeah, they also are actually, I had in the article, some research that showed that wetlands also are major absorbers of CO2. So if you kill off the plant life in them that does that job, you've also worsened global warming and increased the speed of sea rise.
0: And from what I understand, you know, with these landfills, we're not just talking about solid waste here, you know, plastic cups and and diapers and things, which are bad enough. But there are also a lot of chemicals and even some nuclear waste that could escape. Can you tell us more about that?
7: Here's the other thing is most of these dumps are pre nineteen eighty. I mean, the vast majority of them are pre-1980. We don't know what's in those because there were no regulations whatsoever before 1980 on what could go into a dump. So what you have is a situation where at a time when the U.S. used to have a lot more manufacturing on chemical industries and things like that, they were dumping their waste, their transition chemicals and so on into the local landfill. It was the cheapest place to put it. Even the Manhattan, they found Manhattan Project Waste in one of the New Jersey landfills in the wetlands and had to try to dig it all out. And they still haven't succeeded. So that dump, which is closed, called the Edgeboro Landfill, it's got nuclear waste in the bottom of it. There's all of these possibilities, heavy metals, you know, dioxins, everything that's used in manufacturing can be in these dumps and they aren't lined.
0: Because it seems like nobody's really talking about this right now or or making a plan to address it. And you write in your article that the EPA, which would seem like the obvious um, government agency to, you know, spearhead taking care of this problem, they don't actually have jurisdiction over these landfills. Can you tell us about that?
7: Congress would have to give them jurisdiction. They they actually recently waived any regulation at all of landfills that are receiving less than 20 tons of garbage per day. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a lot of garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed.
0: So that leaves it to states and and local municipalities to try to do something with these facilities?
7: Right, exactly.
0: Well, we are in this situation, and and I think people are probably becoming more aware of the potential consequences of sea level rise, and hopefully including this issue of landfills. Where do we go from here? Are there any state or local governments or even international municipalities or governments that are looking at this issue that maybe can, you know, serve as a roadmap for for the rest of us as we're going forward?
7: Unfortunately not. I mean, the closest I can think of is the UK, because when I initially started the stories research, I googled coastal landfills threatened by sea level rise. And the only thing I got was this study in the University of Southampton. And that was a government-funded study. They came up with a list of recommendations and, you know, a survey of all the threatened areas and landfills. And that was a big step forward. I I would say the first thing is that the EPA should do cataloging of all these landfills and find out in a governmental way what the issue is and how big it is and how it could be solved. And then, you know, maybe people will start addressing it.
0: Dave Lindorf is an independent journalist contributing to The Nation. Dave, thank you so much for taking this time with me today.
7: Thank you for having me on.
0: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Mark Seth Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Genevieve Santilli, Teresa Shee, Gabrielle Erton, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Alison Larish composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bobby Bascom. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment.